Welcome to the Reproducibility Podcast Season 2. Uh, this episode uh, is will be an introduction of the new hosts for this season, as well as a discussion about how science can be better and how we should rebuild to being better. Uh, okay, so I'll, I guess I'll start off introductions, maybe. Uh, I'm William Nyam. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist at the University of Chicago. Been a postdoc for a few years now. And I, uh, founded and, uh, organized the Reproducibility Journal Club at the University of Chicago, as well as serve on the steering committee, as well as doing some other things to try and advocate for, um, open science and things like that. I'll throw it over to Sarah, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Absolutely. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sarah Silvey. I'm a music scientist. I'm a postdoc at Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, in St. John's, Canada. I live and work on the ancestral homelands of the Beothuk, and the island of Newfoundland is home to the unceded and unsurrendered territories of the Mi'kmaq. My institution also has a campus in what's now called Labrador, and that's the homelands of uh, various Inuit and Innu peoples. Uh, I've been interested in open science for a while. I'm really excited to have been invited to be part of this core team. I'm really interested in critical theory, um, ways of doing science differently. Uh, what does that look like? What does feminist science look like? What does anti-colonial science look like? And so I'm interested to talk about these kinds of things in relation to open science. And on yeah, to Jan. Really cool. Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Jan. I'm, uh, I'm with Aalto University in Finland. Um, I'm a cognitive psychologist uh, working in HCI and human-computer interaction, studying the emotional experience, uh, primarily the emotional experience of video games. And uh, hopefully I'll be mostly the editor of this whole thing here. <laughs> the podcast in general, this <laughs> new rebooted thing that we're doing. And you have a voice too, of course. So. Of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what spurred sort of uh, the choice of topic for this episode was a blog post that I wrote, actually, <laughs> called uh, Science Needs to Be Better, Not Simply Return to Normal. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'll share a little bit, I guess, about my thoughts going into that blog post. It's but it's pretty self-explanatory from the title. Uh, I was writing it at a time where I was pretty upset <laughs> with how uh, academia was going, uh, especially in light of the pandemic, where I had this overwhelming feeling from everything that I was doing to everything I was seeing and reading that it felt like we weren't really acknowledging the effects of the pandemic and all of the issues and problems that the pandemic had brought to light with our structures and our processes. And there was almost a willful ignorance that the pandemic had happened and we were just trying to get back to normal or trying to return to normal. Mm-hmm. And yeah. for me, returning to normal felt was just not good enough. It's simply just ignoring all of the problems have been brought to light 
and all the issues that were there before and we weren't doing anything to make things better <laughs> so hence the title like we shouldn't just simply return to normal science needs to be better it needs to be better for all of us and uh that doesn't that just mean uh, that doesn't just mean for the scientists within the structures trying to do science but also for those who consume the science or um, need it in their everyday lives right through for example medical interventions and so on and so forth so yeah uh how that's sort of my sort of thoughts behind that blog post yeah that makes a lot of sense i mean we we got here the way that things were before, if we go back to that, then we'll just be back to where we are again, right? Like we've been going in circles. So like something does have to change. Yeah. And I I think to some extent, um, the, the pandemic didn't necessarily, like the the pandemic really hypercharged all the difference that were in our society in general, but in academia Mm -hmm. specifically, um, like they were already there and suddenly it became Mm -hmm. so much more obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, how fucked up some people had it. Yeah, all the invisible labor became very visible. Mm-hmm. Right? And corporations, things like Amazon, worked very, very hard to try to hide that labor as quickly as possible. Everything moved online. Everything mm-hmm. became invisible again. Everything was accessible. Just go home and isolate. It's going to be no problem. But who's working in the factories, um, not the factories, who's working in the warehouses? Yeah. Who's delivering? You know, all of these jobs still exist. Who's making the product that's still there? It's just hidden. So yeah, the pandemic ex- you know, revealed a lot of the exploitation that's going on and revealed who is important, who has value and who does not. What communities are allowed to suffer from COVID and who is allowed to be protected? I actually also had decided when the pandemic started to leave academia. I've obviously now changed my mind <laughs> for now. <laughs> Assuming I, you know, get a job. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh huh. But yeah, I decided to leave. You know, all these things were becoming really obvious. And once I was allowed to pause from the grind, I was like, you know, I don't want to like drive myself into the ground doing all this work. For this, mm. like, for what? For maybe getting a job in the future where I'm going to just keep grinding? Like, no, I want I want a social life. I want balance in my life. And academia right now just really isn't conducive to that. And that's a problem. So, so what exactly um, made you uh, take that decision? Was it that suddenly you had time to think about what you were doing or mm-hmm. what what change caused that? Yeah, it was partly that. It was suddenly everything was stopping and I was like, you know, I was working really hard towards something that was really uncertain, which isn't like inherently, I guess, bad, but I wasn't really getting any response from the people that I was trying to work with. Like I was giving a lot more than I was receiving and that was to me a problem. I want reciprocal relationships. I don't want one-sided things where I'm just giving and giving because that just leads to burnout in the end. And that's also when I started reading more critical literature. I honestly cannot remember how I stumbled upon it. I was studying um, the Indigenous Canada course that's available online uh, for free through Coursera by the University of Alberta. It's a great course. 
Uh, and from there, I also started doing uh, the Yellowhead Institute's Abolition Guide. And somehow through that, I read something that got me into something else. And you know how reading lists just like exponentially expand all the time. Mm. I, I happened upon all of this critique of academia that I'd never come across before, how, you know, it's inherently imperial and heteropatriarchal and colonial. It's like, wait, what? I'm yeah. doing all of this and like hadn't really even thought about it before because it just wasn't something that was taught. If you, do, I did a music degree with a minor in psychology, so I certainly wasn't exposed to any of this. As far as I understand, like psych undergrads aren't taught anything outside of positivism. No. Right. And so I was just like, I feel like I've been lied to my whole life. And what is this? And I'm participating in this system that my politics have long been really against. So like, how do I, uh, you know, how do I do that? How can I work in a system that is completely different from my politics? And I decided that I wasn't able to do that. So for a while, I decided to leave. And then the pandemic continued. And my plan to like go to a working holiday in New Zealand didn't pan out because couldn't get in because COVID. Mm -hmm. And the more I read in critical literature, the more I saw that there are people out there doing things differently. And the more I became motivated to like, to also do things differently, to know that it was possible to know that there is potential support out there, that things are changing and that I can be a part of that. So that's what made me also like come back and give me hope to try yeah, that's, yeah. that's really like motivating actually to to hear like i've i often oscillate there's a you know the the famous academic meme where it's the metronome and it's like vacillating between wanting to leave academia and loving academia and just going mm. back and forth and for me the times where i'm like back in is where i realize that um i have an ability to sort of change the system <laughs> Uh, and trying to in trying to create initiatives or um, create ways that we can make things better for us and like uh, yeah try and change some of these structures that uh, will reduce or hopefully eliminate some of the injustices that are happening in our system Uh, Mm -hmm. can we talk about a specific example we're talking about like systems in general and issues, but like let's maybe think. Yeah, talk about one specific example so we can have something to like dig our teeth into. Yeah, I'd like to touch on something that you mentioned, which was like non-reciprocal relationships mm-hmm. uh, in academia, and I think part of the motivation for me to write this blog post and why I was really unhappy and upset was that I wasn't receiving. Uh, enough validation or rewards for the work that I was doing and uh, there's a great reckoning happening Uh, I think this is true across a lot of postdocs and like early career researchers where they feel like they're doing a lot but they're not really given um, things in return so postdocs uh, have been shown to provide a lot of the training and mentoring of the students in their lab. It's not necessarily from the PI. Um, postdocs are doing a lot of the grant work in sort of making managing the lab and, you know, important things that aren't recognized, such as managing the culture of the lab, being in learning skills and being in touch with um, 
the the skills and the uh, current or most recent uh, research. So you can't see me um, like vigorously nodding my head at all this, but that's what's happening right now. <laughs> uh, so and you know what what do postdocs get in the end? A pretty paltry salary. I mean, in mm-hmm. the US, it's banded by the NIH, which is ridiculous. Uh, what does you that don't really mean? get? Sorry. Sorry. Uh, so the the sa- salaries in the United States are determined by the National Institutes of Health, and they have a um, so it's equal across the entire nation. So there's mm-hmm. no adjustment for cost of living, and these oh. were started years ago. So they may have been reasonable when they were started, but they have not been adjusted for inflation or just anything. That the the increases are like, it's a joke. It's like maybe a thousand dollars per year, perhaps if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's graded. So starting at year zero, it's a little less than like year seven. You know, who wants to do a year seven postdoc really? But um, what is the floor? If you it's don't like mind fifty. Fifty three thousand at the moment, I think. When I started, it was around forty eight to fifty thousand. Yeah, it was. It's not affordable. I've been in situations where I feel Our like the lab is managed... thirty one five. Yeah, it's it's not really great low. nationally. I make more than that yeah. in medicine, but like thirty one thousand five hundred is the floor at Memorial University for a postdoc. That is not a living wage. Yes, it, exactly. It's not a living wage. People are putting in way more hours. If you calculate your hourly rate, it's probably way lower than you ex- like realize. Mm-hmm. Um, so, po- so to to bring it back, uh, postdocs aren't rewarded with yeah. to their value with salary. They aren't really recognized with awards or any other things like that. Uh, it also doesn't count towards career advancement because you don't really get so you so currently the system is you get recognized by publications right yeah. so you aren't you won't get necessarily a citation or a publication from mentorship or from being in the lab doing this extracurricular stuff uh and yeah so and it's under the guise of training because you're called a trainee as a postdoc and that's like they say oh that's the value you're gaining when really that is work that you're putting in, <laughs> not uh, yep, you're not doing it for yourself. <laughs> yes, it's uh, so. Yeah. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but you could see why I was upset and why I decided to put words to a page because and yeah, so that's sort of so I wanted that's where I want to s- sort of couch this. I think reciprocal relationships is a really uh, good way of thinking about this because it, it is not reciprocated. For a lot of people, in many no. many ways, I, yeah, it's a terrible culture. I saw recently on Facebook or Twitter that there there's now internships that you have to pay per hour to be an wait, intern. Seriously, for. it's like wait, what? When what? <laughs> like when did this flip? It's just it's such an undervaluing of of labor of skill, and that I mean that comes from capitalism. That comes from the the extraction of of labor for capital. Yeah. I was about to say, like, three years ago, that was a sketch by a German comedian that they wanted to get an internship, and the people in the interview said, well, the last applicant w- said he would pay 30 euros an hour. What would you pay? <laughs> I mean, it, it's scary, but, like, 
I feel like teaching assistants, like, you know, grads, graduate students who teach classes, that's basically what's happening. They're going into student loans, uh, student debts, uh, and they're asked to teach a course and they're not really paid for it, at least in most you know, mm-hmm. United States universities. So that is effectively paying for an internship in a way, which is horrifying. It's closer than you, you think, right? Yeah. Um, and in North America, you're expected to teach, to apply for a tenure track position. So you have to have right. taught at some point, mm-hmm. but you don't really, you don't get paid well for that labor. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. So at the risk of, uh, of being the class trader here. Um, <laughs> so I kind of like doing stuff. Uh, in an honorary position. Like, I, I'm on the reproducibility steering committee. I'm not getting paid for this. Um, I'm not getting paid for this podcast. Editing is... There's a lot of things I am doing because I think it is important for science, uh, for our community, for whatever. And I like doing that. And I would not want to be paid for that. Also for, like, the few uh, opportunities where I was able to give talks to people. I, I, I like doing this. I don't want them to pay me. With the very big caveat that um, my supervisor or my position allows for me to do that while getting paid and uh, living or being European, working in Europe, I, I get paid okay. I can't start a family, but I'm I'm not going hungry. Um, so I am in that privileged privileged position to do a lot of voluntary work. Mm-hmm. Like, my point being that um, we as scientists should get paid enough that we can do all the stuff for free because we are not working for ourselves or for any singular entity, but for a community, right? Hmm. Hmm. So I don't know. My, yeah, my gut reaction to that is mm-hmm. we don't want to set a standard where we sacrifice like our livelihoods for this so-called freedom to take on initiatives. So the sort of the floor, as you said, the, the let's say salary floor must be higher to allow us to do this. And it shouldn't drop before, like we shouldn't be taking cuts from that to oh, allow yeah, us totally. to do that. But the probably more positive solution would be like there, hopefully in future, there are lines of work which you can have a livelihood doing the things that you like, such as these community initiatives, such as reproducibility and form informing open science communities across academia or in editing a podcast that uh, is disseminating science and the perspectives of early career researchers and bringing a voice, bring a, bring a spotlight to their voices. Yeah. Like, yeah. So. Like this, I think this should be recognized as part of our work and valued as part of our existing work and not something to do on top of all of the other stuff that we do. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, right? like, sorry, I feel that's, like it's yeah. part of the problem that I felt when I decided to leave was that it was like, okay, I have to be a researcher, but I'm also expected to do public engagement. I'm also expected to do community outreach. And I'm also expected to teach. And I'm also expected, you know, to do all of these things and be a grant writer and be, and be an expert at everything. Mm. And I was like, I, but I can't, I cannot be an expert at everything. It is not possible. 
you know, and I was like, oh, well, now you have to learn evasion stats. And now you have to learn open science if you want to get a job. And now you have to, you know, and it was like, okay, I'm bilingual and I like to teach stats. Those things should give me a job. They haven't. Now mm. I'm adding public engagement and doing a lot of community stuff. Okay, that should get me a job. It doesn't. Okay, now I'm adding critical. It was like, what, what do I need? Where does it end? Like, how much do I need to show that, like, I am an expert at what I do and my labor has value? Like, it, it just seems like it's getting out of control. I mean, I totally agree with all of that, right? My my point was more that as an academic, you should be paid a living wage while having the freedom to engage with science and uh, benefit a community as you see fit, right? Um, and, you know, all yeah. that what now runs as extracurricular stuff or stuff that you are supposed to do on your free time, um, it's not as that bad at all, too, but it's other universities I heard it's like assume that stuff like peer review you're doing that in your off time and like that mm. that shit can't fly and um, all of that stuff should be done in your working hours your working hours should be set you should be able to go home and you should be able to live from that mm -hmm. or you know maybe even Absolutely. be able to have a family yeah. um like how many academics cannot even you know start a family what we get paid and the and just the Plus constant the threat divide. yes and the constant threat of having to move like completely uproot mm -hmm. all the time yeah yeah what you were saying really also made me think to ask who are we accountable to as scientists hmm. when we do our work who are we accountable to in my opinion i feel like science is a public good so naturally, I think we're accountable to the public, um, especially because the public funds a lot of science through tax. So it seems like we're accountable to everyone, uh, mm. to put it sort of bluntly, uh, in my opinion. Um, you mm -hmm. could argue for sort of varying levels of accountability, but at I think some core aspect, humankind almost is who we're accountable to. I mean, even beyond that, maybe. So but then, how do you hold yourself uh, accountable to some to a group that's so general? It's tough, right? Like, I I don't think I have the answers. Um, mm -hmm. I've been thinking about that a lot, honestly. Like, who who am I accountable to, and who do we do our work for? And it's something that I've been thinking and writing about, and also this whole idea of universality and like that's a problem I, I don't agree with it but that could be a whole other podcast so we'll leave that topic yeah, for another time yeah um yeah i didn't yeah, love what about, i was like, saying the difference I was saying between it. <laughs> accountability to the funders accountability to your participants accountability towards your mm. colleagues who are going to read your work like all of those are different relationships of accountability and they all require i think different things from us and how we navigate that i think is, a, is an interesting question to try to figure out i'm I guess I want to say, oh, like on that journey, right. I made a little I like graph of who I'm accountable to and what those relationships are like. Oh, that's that's really cool. That seems like a really good exercise to it take is. on. And and that's when I realized uh, that like the only relationship where I give more than I get is to my institution. And I was like, I don't like that. I don't like that <laughs> at all. <laughs> you know, right? So now right. I've adjusted that, and I give less as much as I. And, right like i do have certain responsibilities to my institution that's fine but i don't give more 
than I feel like I need to, but I do give now more to my lab mates and I'm more mm. like I review more, you know, so I, I'm, I'm shifting where my energies are going based on this analysis of the web of accountabilities that I'm a part of in those relationships. Yeah. That sounds mm. great to me. Like taking stock of where you put your energy and where you put your resources seems mm -hmm. like always a good exercise. And something that's been in percolating in my mind is like, I, I don't want to call it micro level change, but like sort of local changes feel way more important and yes. impactful and way more accountable, like a, a better place to be accountable at rather than yeah. there's this general universal thing. It's too overwhelming and you can't really make those connections and build those uh bridges whereas with um more local like places like in your lab or in your own discipline or these these seem more manageable and more sort of tangible in terms of ways to be accountable and ways to be like to create better like you don't want to discount changes in those systems those small level systems because they can be way they could be impactful and much Absolutely. more meaningful um, yeah i've just started reading emergent strategy uh, by adrian marie brown and i've only gotten through the first like couple of chapters but that's exactly what like i feel so far <laughs> the point of the book is it's about small changes will grow into bigger change over time but yeah, the focus and... is on relationships and building deep relationships more than or instead of a bunch of shallow relationships that are spread out make change at the local level uh i love that as a lot uh i was also so i was recently invited by the national institutes of health to to this kind of what the name of it was like catalyzing communities of research rigor workshop such a mouthful mm -hmm. but one of the, they sort of led the initiative with a um a talk by damon centola and his book is called change and there's a subline that I've forgotten, but he was doing network analyses and sort of showing that um, with complex behaviors, such as, for example, taking on open science uh, principles, then you don't, you sort of imagine it as a contagion where you start from the center and it ripples out. But the real way to sort of instantiate these changes is you need them to be at the peripheries and sort of have it normed in those local networks mm. before they... So then when you see, uh, like, when you get sort of a critical mass in, within a local network, that can then spread to other local networks because they see us within the local network, you have this um, behavior normed, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's been really interesting. And that sort of was in line with my views that local change is important, like... In, like even within institutions, within labs, mm -hmm. uh, even within dyads, like PI and uh, uh, mentor, uh, mentor to the mentee, that's really important. That's really mm -hmm. valuable and ways to do that. Um, sorry, sorry to take no. a bit of the, of the space here, but um, I no, think absolutely. I agree. this is a good way to couch. Um, so the second idea that we're taking up and a theme that came out of that same workshop that I attended was this idea about evolution versus revolution. <laughs> and so the reason, so uh, these words are heavily weighted. So let me try and explain <laughs> a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Evolution is the idea that um, we can, we have a system in place and we can sort of 
reform that system and change that system uh, for it to be better, for mm. science to be better. Or we need a revolution, which is has this idea of you sort of tear it all down and we need to rebuild these structures from the ground up kind of idea. Uh, naturally, these are sort of two extremes. Uh, and with most things, the true answer probably lies in the middle. But I think this is a good place to sort of think about that and um, yeah, continue our discussions in that vein. I don't know, Jan, if you had uh, any thoughts about that. I, I always have a lot of thoughts. Um, I mean, I mean you, <laughs> sadly, I don't have a camera today, otherwise you would have seen me nodding through your uh, through everything you said. Um, I mean, it is super hard to argue for a revolution when you when it's so hard to see what is at the other end i think in the end i would argue that a revolution mm. revolution would be better than you know a slow evolution because be, because as we as, as we see at the moment um yeah the open science movement already kind of encroaches on big publishers but we see that they are not going away, but they are changing their tactics to dig their claws even deeper. Like Elsevier has gone full on surveillance capitalism at this point. There was uh, uh, recently a few blog posts popped up. Um, if I, I try to find them and put them in the description when this is published. Uh, that kind of show that Elsevier kind of knows everything you're doing from generating a research idea up to publishing your paper, uh, depending on if your university pays for these and those services. Like, you're using Mendeley, they know exactly what you're reading. Hmm. Um, scope, I think Scope it's is also wild. Yeah, let, I want to acknowledge the author of that. I think it was Ico Freed, yes. I think, yep. uh, who did this analysis and like looked into the metadata that uh, Mendeley pulls, uh, and it's scary how much information that is clear that we've not consented to being collected and <laughs> probably used and sold is being taken by Mendeley. It's well, technically it's you did consent, but I mean it's <laughs> gray area there. But um, no, it, it's just this web of uh, terms of services that are you know purposefully opaque. Um, no, but yeah, my my original point is um, like a revolution. It, like thinking about this, a revolution makes makes so much more sense. Just get rid of them. Um, you know, disband them and instead do anything else. Mm. But what would that be, right? Um, yeah, that's what's exciting. Yeah. Like, I, I think, you know, for me, from the abolition stuff that I've read, it's all about imagining future worlds and you have to imagine it before it can happen. So let's imagine together, like, what, what do what do we want? What are different things that we could do? And instead of maybe having one thing that replaces the one thing, let's have like a hundred different things that replace the one thing. Mm. Try different things, try different experiments. Try and fail. It's okay to yeah. fail. That's another problem in academia. We could talk about that another time. <laughs> Failure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. Um so I like the point that Jan's making. So it feels like we need 
like what stood out to me was the pace of the change. Like mm. we really need something like abrupt mm. almost. And mm. that sort of is a calling of a revolution. We need the change now, immediate. Um, yeah, with the big publishers, uh, you know, I've, I've taken on an editor in chief role of a no fee, uh, open access journal, not for, with a not for profit publisher. And it's nice, the not for profit is by scientists. Yeah. It's awesome. by early career researchers. It's so tough. Like <laughs> people, ca- I think people care, but no one's going to submit to our journal. Um, I mean, if there's any listeners out there, the journal for reproducibility in neuroscience, if you got a piece, let me know. Um, but the mm. idea is that, um, yeah, it's like, you know, we're still within this, we're still stuck, right? We're still stuck in the system where we do care about prestige and we do want visibility and readership of our work. And it's, it's, it's hard to sort of break that with, you know, a smaller journal, right? Um, mm-hmm. even though we're probably providing better services in terms of reviews, in terms of, you know, just publishing and formatting of the damn paper because <laughs> we're not reliant on paper formats we're like oh all online and it's archived just it just makes way more sense it's way better mm. um so i i recently had a discussion in my uh journal club uh a fresh phd student um he kind of realized he was at this crossroads where he could either go for really proper registered reports and that then would usually be published at a yeah don't celebrate too early wait (laughs) where i'm going with this (laughs) um uh, dear listeners will was uh enthusiastically shaking his fist um yes i love registered reports i think they are the future but they are absolutely awesome um or uh but then those would be published in like smaller journals because the most prestigious journals, especially in the field that he is in, and still don't do registered reports. They're so slow to update, aren't they? Yes. And they're the ones with the most resources and the most funds and the... Yes. Exactly. Oh, and just, the oh. alternative... So he uh, argues that the alternative is he would be in the position to do some really good work and trying to get that out in nature or science arguing that okay he couldn't do the open science stuff that he really wants to do i.e registered reports uh and all of that stuff but he would be way more hireable could move on into a position of power and from there then establish the open science practices and i i hear that so often it bothers me so much of like oh we're just gonna wait we're just gonna wait till a position of power we're gonna wait and And like right but then how long? How and how how far has that taken us? Like, yeah, it's not like reform hasn't been around until the open science movement. There has been change and and like you know, it, I get it. Like you want to position security before you take on these challenges. But I have a point against it that I recently learned, and it comes back to my network, the network structures I was talking about earlier, where we have to realize that hesitancy. Uh, to adopt these behaviors is not a neutral action. So mm-hmm. not doing anything is not an, is not, you're not fence sitting. You're, it's part of the resistance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
this is in terms of a network analysis, this is the idea. So, um, if you have, think about what determines the uptake of these complex behaviors, such as a registered report. Well, it's not, if you have an, if you have multiple connections and like, as we all do, as we're very interconnected in this age, if you have a, not a, a lot of non-adopters, it's so, it's, you compare that to the single adopter, right? Let's say your ratio is one to 10. The, the weight of you taking on this behavior is going to be much more difficult, right? Because imagine if it was nine out of 10 people who were doing registered reports around you. Now you feel like this behavior is normed and you have a chance to adopt this behavior or take on this, like the motivation to do it. So waiting and hesitating is actually a, a resistance to having this behavior spread and be normed throughout the network. So it's not like hesitancy is not a neutral action. I do understand the idea that it's, uh, you want to wait for like security and you, it would be easier to do it from position of power. Um, but I would argue, um, well, specifically in the case of registered reports, I think they're great for, um, junior mm-hmm. trainees. And I would argue they're probably, you know, if you, you might have to take a bit of a hedge, a bit of a bet, a bit of a gamble, but. What part of report, science isn't a gamble? True. But <laughs> re- a registered report would look really good, I think, on the, on the CV of a junior mm-hmm. trainee. It seems it shows it signals that they care about the rigor of their research and you know are in touch with current science reforms. Uh, likely, the work is better because it's been reviewed at an earlier stage. Probably the pre-registration probably means they've thought about theory. They've probably adequately powered it. Mm. You know, all of this is great. This is these are all good things mm. for the work itself for the content. Screw these sort of prestige-based judgments. Um, and these heuristics, I think scientists are wisening up, um, to these kind of things. And they're not going to solely rely on that one nature paper or that one science paper to make all of their decisions going forward. So mm-hmm. that's my and, sort of little piece on that. And, yeah. and I mean, I came down on the same side of this discussion, right? I was also more on the side of, yeah, fuck prestige. Um, but at the same time, it is, man, we're kind of, asking the the people most vulnerable in the mm. pyramid that is academia to do the risks by not playing mm-hmm. the game. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, there yeah. was, I think Hextra and Vazir talked a little bit about this in aspiring to greater intellectual humility in science, um, that it's the early career researchers who putting themselves at a potential disadvantage by being honest about the limitations of their work. And not overhyping themselves. And it's the I right it thing to stronger. do. Yeah, I mean, I it's mean, the, the right thing to do, but it's so scary. Yeah. yeah, it is. I've been thinking about this um, a lot recently as well. Like, since I made a decision to leave academia, but then, you know, now I'm coming back. But when I made a decision to leave, I'm not as attached anymore. And so I feel a lot more comfortable being critical. You know, like, I don't care what people think anymore. And I have the security to do that because of my job and I have that privilege. So I'm going to take it, but I am still like relatively precarious. Right. I went to a conference and I was, 
I brought up in, in music science the issues of universality, and I brought up how politics and science are inherently intertwined. Like Bill said, being neutral does not exist. So, you know, I brought this up, and the other people were like, oh, yes, I agree, I agree. Or not everybody, but you know, some. And a lot of them were more established scholars. And sort of part of me was like, okay, great. Well, then why aren't you saying something? Like, why do I, the precariously employed do person... Do something! Yeah, why do I have yeah. to want to bring it up? And to say things. Like, if, if you agree with me and you believe that things should be different, do something about it, say something about it. And, you know, don't put that on the junior people. Yeah. And I mean, there we're kind of back of the um, the idea evolution versus revolution. When the those people who are just who just don't care about open science, who don't care if you have a registered report in your CV, they just want to see that nature publication. If those people are out of the hiring positions, um, then suddenly you could do all this stuff with so much more um, uh, security, right? But at the same time, like me speaking up has given me opportunities I didn't have before because now I'm reaching those people who do agree and it's making new connections. And then maybe those people will, you know, through those communications, those relationships can value things differently and can make a difference, right? Knowing that there are other people out there that agree with you makes it a lot easier to maybe speak up on a hiring committee mm. or as a reviewer or in any position of power to actually challenge the dominant discourse. Yeah, fi finding the community that will support you in your endeavors uh, is important. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's tough. You've got to put yourself out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, initiatives fall flat. Sometimes it's a really good idea, but it's just, you know, you're too early or mm -hmm. like timing or whatever. The community just doesn't pick it up but if you keep going and if you believe you're right uh and you work towards it like you, you believe you're doing something good i should say then uh hopefully you'll find the community behind that and that will carry that forward um it's tough though you, you there's so many barriers to doing that and it is the like generally the earlier career scientists generally those who are in more precarious situations who are having to sort of volunteer and put in their time and effort beyond what they're already doing to try and get these initiatives off the ground and it's sad that science is in a state like this uh unfortunately but at the know. same time i'm not super surprised like given where it comes from i'm not surprised yeah. <laughs> yep but arguably i don't know so the, the way i was told uh, how, the way i was taught what science is right it was very much this, like the Mertonian ideals, right, um, of communalism. Uh, no, he straight up said communism. Um, and like that we are working towards the truth, that we are not in it for our own prestige, that we are in it to further humanity as a whole, right? And then you kind of getting into this field thinking, hey, I like that. I want to do that. And the, and, academia is looking back at oh, oh wait you believe that oh. <laughs> um, but i mean kind of uh, we were very depressing so far i think yeah look, no i think there's a motive there's an optimism <laughs> and a motivation here yes actually like there is 
people are doing these things, and、yeah. there is a belief there, and、yeah. people are recognizing that these things are broken and need to be changed, they need to be improved, and there are people doing that, and I'm sure with、um, good, good, well thought out ideas that are communicated to the scientific community,、uh, they will get. Picked up and you'll get traction.、Um, I think reproducibility is a great example of this. Like it started out as a small group of early career researchers at Oxford, and now it's global across so many institutions and creating a lot of change in terms of improving the trainee experience at, for many at many institutions by giving them this research training and giving them community around、uh, science and research rigor. So there. Silver linings. We have, we have it. So, yeah. and and back, mean, to、yeah. to link it to earlier, while primarily still working on this interpersonal level, right? Because the reproducibility, it's mostly about connecting with people that are around you, um,、mm-hmm. and kind of building those personal relationships and kind of pushing each other towards、uh, better science, um. Yeah, I've got, I, a, I, I've, I've got a cop-out answer to our evolution versus revolution discussion, which is local evolution at many places becomes a revolution. So yeah, start off、okay. with start start <laughs> off evolving your local network, and then you'll see as it carries through, more people do it, it will be part of a revolution. That's one for Twitter bio. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sarah, what's what is your Look into the future. I mean, overall, <laughs> I, <laughs> I I think I'm optimistic. I mean, I see how much change can be made locally, like in my own work, in my relationships with people I work with, in my lab. How much has changed the past couple of years because we've intentionally thought about it, what we're doing,、yeah. and how we're going to do it. You know, and Then that ripples out because all of that work is going to touch all sorts of other people, and they're going to go on to do different things. And so, yeah, it's the conversations I've been having at at conferences and online events, and what I've been reading. It's all just very, very optimistic. I am I am in the revolution camp. <laughs> Generally, <laughs> I like to think about. I like to imagine the future. What what can it look like in the future, and how are we going to get there? And I like reading about different, like theories of change. I think it's really important. I'm I'm finishing a book called Revolutionary Rehearsals in the Neoliberal Age, <laughs> all about revolutions, <laughs> like why <laughs> so why they failed and how we can do better the next time. So affiliated very, Amazon very link、here. in the description. <laughs> uh? Affiliated Amazon link in the description, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but all your recommendations, we will put those into the description. Yes, those will be in the show notes. Yes.、Uh, if I can just. Riff of that. I mean, you know, we get these sort of revolution and have to be like have to be fiery, sort of war kind of you know ideas, which is not true. Like we could have you know well thought out, positively empowering revolutions. Those are possible, and sometimes it just so happens that I think the、uh, most optimistic people are the most critical because they're the ones that that can see things are.、Uh, Like things can be better, because they can they they're not willing to accept the status quo. They think things can be better, and they can see it being better. They become the most critical, 
right? Mm-hmm. So that I, I, those two don't go like there's they're not on the opposite sides of the spectrum. I think they're very much on the same side uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff. So yeah, that's I feel like that's an optimistic view to have. Uh, I don't know if that. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm putting words in your mouth, Sarah, but uh, I think that that was. I think that's motivating. That's inspiring. You know. I think it's a great place to wrap up the episode. Yeah, I think so. We've got like what? almost an hour of recording here. Yeah. I don't know all the stuff I have to edit. Oh, <laughs> <No. laughs> hey, edit out this bit. Tell everyone where yeah. you can, where they can follow you, where they can find you. Um, do you want to start, Sarah? Sure. Where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Sarah underscore Sobe. I am also on TikTok at Madame YYT, M-A-D-O-M. That's my burlesque stage name. Uh, I share what I read. That's so cool. So I'll, I'll be talking about open science. I'll be talking about what we read in, in book club. I read a lot. So that's where I share my readings. You can find me uh, on Twitter at Will Nyam. Uh, so to spell my last name, it's N-G-I-A-M <laughs> in case people need that. And you can also find me uh, on things like Slack or if you, I pop out in many various open science uh, Slack workspaces. So let me know. You feel free to directly message me if you want to talk to me there. Cool, cool. And I'm I'm mostly active on Twitter under uh, Fornhagen JB. Um, it's mostly stupid jokes. <laughs> we love this and reproducibility stuff. And most importantly, reproducibility.org, yes. where you can find out how to start your own reproducibility journal club and start your own local evolution for global revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. nice this is an auditory medium you can <laughs> clap. <laughs> I know, I like the clicks. Uh, okay. You listen to Reproducibility Season 2, Episode 2 Science Needs to Be Better. Your hosts this episode were William Niem, Sarah Sore, and Jan Vornhagen who you can find on Twitter at Will underscore Niem, at Sarah underscore Sobe, and at Fornhagen JB, respectively. This episode was produced by William Niem and edited by Jan Fornhagen. For more information on the podcast and how to start your own journal club, visit reproducibility.org. Thanks for listening.